Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let's receive it with thankfulness. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Help us to hear and to believe and to treasure and to savor and and, and to enjoy it today. It's for your name we pray. Amen. I'm not very good at cooking. I've got about a 30% accuracy rate with grilled cheese. Box mac and cheese, pretty solid at. One of the, I don't know very much about cooking, but one of the things that I do know about cooking is that one of the most important skills that you can have as a cook is to know when you can and when you can't make a substitution. Because sometimes substitutions are good. Like if you're making that box mac and cheese, you could use butter or margarine. I've heard that. Some substitutions are good. Some substitutions are bad. One time I tried to make box mac and cheese and found out halfway through that I didn't have any milk, and so I decided to just add more water. That didn't work. It was really bad. It was a bad substitution. Not because water is bad, but because it's not milk. Some substitutions are good, some are bad, and some are deadly. Like if you were to use rat poison instead of milk in your boxed macaroni and cheese. And the most dangerous substitutions that we're tempted to make in this life is expecting anything to take the place of God. Expecting anything to do something in our lives that only God can do. Sometimes we expect good things to take the place of God, like believing that coming to church will make you a better person and will get you into God's kingdom. Gathering with God's people is a good thing, but it's not God and it can't save you. Sometimes we expect bad things to take the place of God. Today, people are turning to other gods or or they're rejecting Jesus for another path to life. Those are bad things. But whether we're replacing God with a good thing or a bad thing, it's always a disaster. And think about it. How could you ever substitute Jesus with anything? Just think about how great and wonderful and mighty Jesus is. No one else is worthy of your worship. No one else could stand in his place. Only Jesus is worthy of your worship. So don't ever accept a substitute. Think about how costly salvation is. 
Jesus didn't just come to teach an ethic. He came to give his own life on the cross, dying for our sins, conquering death forever and rising from the dead. How could anything ever stand in his place as a substitute? Whenever we expect a good thing or a bad thing to take the place of God in our lives or to do something that only God can do, it always leads to a disaster. And that's part of the message of the letter to the Hebrews, which we've been studying together. This letter was written to people, Christians from a Jewish background, as following Jesus became harder for them, as their families and their employers and their government turned on them with persecution, these Jewish background believers were tempted to turn away from Jesus. They were tempted to make some deadly substitutions. Like saying, Jesus sure is fine. Maybe Moses would be just as good. Maybe we could swap out Moses for Jesus and still turn out okay. And the letter to the Hebrews has one clear message. Jesus is better than anything. So don't let go of him. He's better than Moses. He's stronger than Moses. Moses is great, but Jesus is greater. So don't let go of him. And today, as we come to Hebrews chapter 3, the one thing that I want you to take home today is that only Jesus can give you real hope forever. So don't let go of him. Only Jesus can give you real hope forever. So don't let go of him. We come today to the second major section in the letter to the Hebrews. So far in the letter to the Hebrews, we've seen Jesus primarily lifted up in comparison to the angels. And the author of the Hebrews has said that Jesus is better than the angels because only Jesus is God. Only Jesus is worthy of your worship. An angel is not. Now we arrive at the second section to the letter to the Hebrews, where the author is going to explain that Jesus is not only better than the angels, but he's better than Moses. Because what Moses couldn't do, bring the people into the promised land, Jesus has done finally and decisively and perfectly by offering his people not just refuge in a promised land, but eternal rest. And that's where we find ourselves today. And as we begin this comparison of Jesus and Moses, I want you to see three things about Jesus from this passage. The first is that Jesus is a faithful servant. The second is that Jesus is infinitely glorious. And the third is that Jesus is the Lord of God's people. These are three essential roles that Jesus plays and no one and nothing could ever take his place as a substitute in any of these things. So first, Jesus is a faithful servant. Christ came with a mission and he fulfilled that mission perfectly. Perfectly. Verse one, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. So he begins this passage by describing Christians. And how are Christians described? They're described as holy. That means that they're set apart for God. That's what the word holy means. It means set apart. And Christians are set apart for God's purposes. You exist, friends, for God's glory, not your own preferences. 
not your own comfort. You are holy. You exist for God's purposes. He calls them holy brothers. The church is a family. It's not an organization. It's not a building, and it's not an event. It's a family with a bond far deeper than biology because we're brought together, not just by a common ideology, but by the blood of Jesus. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Christians share not just an affiliation with Jesus, not just being set apart for his purposes and his glory, but we share a heavenly calling. We have a common future that Jesus and only Jesus could secure for us. And this calling isn't ambiguous or obscure. It's a heavenly calling. Now, typically when we speak about heaven, we think about a place that we will go when we die. But typically when the Bible speaks about heaven, it speaks about the the, the place where God reigns, the sphere in which God reigns over his people. It's the heavenly kingdom in contrast to the earthly kingdom or in contrast to the worldly kingdom. And so we share in a heavenly calling. The common future that Christians share is not just that we'll we'll not go to hell when we die, but that we'll be a part of God's kingdom forever. We, We won't just get to escape eternal punishment. We'll get to enjoy eternal bliss, which is not just roads paved with gold and a mansion with your name on it, but knowing God himself and being with God himself, which, friends, far surpasses the greatest reward. You are holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. That's who Christians are. What then do Christians do? What are they to do? The author to the Hebrews instructs them, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Dwell on Jesus. Know Jesus. Savor Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. And who is this Jesus? Verse 1 continues. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Who is Jesus? He's an apostle. Typically, when we use the word apostle, we refer to some of Jesus' earliest followers who were leaders in the early church. The word apostle really just means a messenger who comes with authority like an emissary or an ambassador. So the apostles, the leaders in the early church, they were apostles because they were sent by the Lord Jesus with authority to lead and build the church. And Jesus is an apostle in a different way because he was sent by God the Father to fulfill a particular mission, the salvation of his people to secure real hope forever, to secure this heavenly calling for you. Jesus is the apostle of your hope, and he has fully, finally, faithfully accomplished that mission. Jesus is an apostle. He's a high priest. He's the high priest of our confession. In the Old Testament, priests represented God to the people. They stood before the Israelites and they said, this is what God is like. And they represented the people before God. They offered sacrifices and led worship for God's people. They represented God to the people and they represented the people to God. 
And Jesus is a high priest who serves us in those same ways. We're not going to get very far into this because this is a major theme in the letter to the Hebrews, but let me just give you a taste right now. Jesus is a high priest who serves us in three ways, sympathizes, stands, and saves. He sympathizes. Because he is fully man, he is able to sympathize with your weakness and suffering. Hebrews is going to expand on all three of these, so we're just going to mention them right now. Come back next week. Jesus is a high priest who's able to sympathize. Jesus is a high priest who's able to stand. Because he is fully God, he is able to stand before God for you. You couldn't do that. You're not holy enough. You're not good enough. You're not great enough. You're not powerful enough. You don't have the authority to come and stand before God. But Jesus does because he is holy, because he is perfect. Jesus is able to stand before God for you. He pleads your case before the judge, and he does it successfully. He's able to sympathize, he's able to stand, and he is able to save because he offered a perfect sacrifice for your sins, his own life, dying on the cross, taking the penalty that you've earned for your sins, rising victoriously from the grave. The high priest had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because the blood of bulls and goats was never enough, but the blood of Jesus has fully, finally, once and for all, paid for your sins, friends. Jesus is a perfect high priest. And he's faithful, verse 2 says, he was faithful to him who appointed him. The word faithful means that someone's dependable. They're worthy of faith because they've shown themselves to be trustworthy. They've shown themselves to be worthy of confidence because they do what they're asked to do. And Jesus was faithful, and he is faithful. He was appointed by God for a particular mission, and he fulfilled that mission perfectly. This is a major theme in John's gospel. Let me just give you two tastes from John's gospel on this topic. John 3, 17. For God did not send... Remember, he's an apostle. He's a faithful servant. He's sent on a mission. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. A couple chapters later, John 6, 57. As the living Father, Jesus says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. The mission that Jesus has been given by God is to secure true life, and salvation for God's people. We've been separated from God by our sin. Jesus came to secure real hope forever, to bring us back to God, to reconcile us to God. And Jesus didn't just have this mission. He actually did it. He was faithful to accomplish this mission. Have you ever known someone at work who thought that a title or a position like gave them all this authority to speak about anything. But when, when you really got down to it, they had no idea what they were talking about. Jesus is not like that. He doesn't just have a title that he thinks gives him some authority. He doesn't just stand in the heavens and say, I am the Messiah, look at me. He's actually accomplished his mission 
as the Messiah, which is to secure real hope forever for you. So don't let go of him, friends. Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Verse 2 continues. So this is the first comparison that the author of Hebrews makes between Jesus and Moses. And it's a way that they're similar. Before he explains how Jesus and Moses are different, he explains how they're similar. And he says that they're both faithful. They both were given a task, given a mission, and they both accomplished it. Moses' mission was relating to God's house, verse 2 says. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So Moses is most faithful for his mission of leading God's people out of Egypt into the promised land. But here the author of Hebrews speaks about another mission that Moses has that you could read about in your Bibles from Exodus to Numbers. His mission of erecting a house for God to dwell in among his people called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. This was a place where God would dwell with his people. God spoke about it to Moses in Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God was going to dwell with his people. Now what on earth could that mean? Because isn't God omnipresent? Isn't God everywhere? So in what sense could Moses, by God's design, build a house for God to dwell in? This place, this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, wasn't so much a single place where God was, but rather a mark of his particular presence with his people. God really was there, and he really was there in a unique way, distinct from the way that he's everywhere. Let me give you an example. If you held a crying baby, you might hold that baby close, And you might say, shh, it's okay, I'm here. And what you're communicating to that baby is not, I'm in the same physical location as you. What you're communicating is, I'm for you. You don't need to cry because I'm for you. I'm not going anywhere. You're mine. Saying to a baby, it's okay, I'm here, is not a mark of your location, but a mark of your relationship. And the tabernacle or the tent of meeting that Moses built was not so much a mark of his location, although he was really there, but a mark of his relationship. He was saying, I'm here in your midst, sinful Israelites, because I'm your God and because you're my people. We're in covenant with one another. You're not alone in this world. You don't have to look to the nations for deliverance because I'm here with you. And so there's a parallel here. Do you see it between Jesus and Moses? They both have a mission to bring God's people back to him. 
Moses erected a tent of meeting where God could dwell with his sinful people, Jesus giving his life on the cross to bring God's people back to him, not separated by a tent and a curtain and a courtyard, but where God's people could freely dwell with him forever. Jesus and Moses both have a mission to bring God's people back to him, his sinful people back to him. And Jesus is a faithful servant working to bring you back to God. Don't ever, under any circumstances, accept a substitute. People today, if you, if you go out with us today for evangelism, for gospel and grub, and you talk to people, and you ask them, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Why? Pretty much everybody that you talk to is going to say, yes, I think I'm going to go to heaven because I've been a good person, or I've done more good than bad. That's a substitute. That's not a faithful servant. You, friends, need a servant more faithful than yourself to bring you back to God. You need Jesus. No substitution will ever do. And friends, the fact of the matter is, I don't think most of you will be tempted to believe that this week. I don't think you would ever come right out and say this week, yeah, I could be good enough to get to heaven because you hear me yell about it every week. And yet, I think that we subtly allow this worldview to creep into the way we live. Why do you have so much guilt on mornings that you don't pray? Because you believe, and I believe, that God loves us more on the days that we do good spiritually. You see what you're doing? You're accepting a substitute, and it's dangerous. Why do we look down on other people who don't believe the same things as us theologically, other Christians that don't believe the same things as us theologically, or don't have their lives as put together as we do? Why do we look down on those people? It's because we believe that God loves us more than them because we've got it figured out better. You know what we're trusting? We're trusting in a less faithful servant than Jesus to make us right with God. And it's deadly. Don't do it. God, save us from our self-reliance. Save us from our self-righteousness. It's going to kill us. Jesus is a faithful servant. He is working to bring you back to God. He will faithfully do it, so don't accept any substitute. Jesus and Moses are working to bring God's people back to him. And now the author of Hebrews is going to explain how these two faithful servants have profoundly different roles in accomplishing this mission. Second point I want you to know. The second two won't be as long as the first one. Don't worry. Jesus and Moses, Jesus and Moses, both working to bring God's people back to him. But the second point about Jesus is that Jesus is infinitely glorious, infinitely glorious. Because here's the thing, Jesus is the God who will dwell with his people forever. And so he's infinitely glorious. Moses gave his life to serve an institution, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and that is an institution that Jesus created. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses 
as much more glory. So how is Jesus counted of more glory than Moses? In what way? As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. An architect gets more glory than the building. Some of you work in construction, and if you wanted to build a third story to this building, you wouldn't walk around and find three-story buildings and ask the building, hey, how'd you get that up there? What'd you, how'd you do that? Did you like add it on later? Or was it built from the beginning? Just how'd you, how would you recommend I do that down the street? You wouldn't ask a building those questions because a building is a pile of rocks and cement and some other stuff. You would find the architect and you would ask her for advice. You would ask her, how do you build three stories on this thing? That's what you would do because an architect gets more honor than the building because the architect built it. And Jesus gets more honor than Moses because Jesus designed the tabernacle. The tabernacle was his idea. Moses is a great hero, but he's incomparable to Jesus. Jesus is infinitely glorious. He is the God who you will dwell with forever. Don't accept any substitutes. Don't accept Moses as a substitute, but don't accept anything else either. Some people turn to other gods. Today, Islam is the fastest growing religion in North America. It's growing faster than Christianity because people are turning from the true God to false gods. Any substitution is dangerous. And yet, I don't think that most of you are going to be tempted to convert to Islam this week. And yet, we're tempted to substitute Jesus, the infinitely glorious one, in far more subtle ways, such as losing your amazement in him, which will lead you to deprioritize him in your life. With so many exciting opportunities in our city, so many shiny things that you could buy, so many controversial leaders that you could follow, it's easy to forget how wonderful Jesus really is. Jesus alone is infinitely glorious. Don't accept any substitutions. And friends, cards on the table, this is why we're preaching through Hebrews to help you believe that because it's really hard, to help me believe that because it's really hard, to look at Jesus every week in Hebrews to see how wonderful and astounding he is so that we don't have any choice but to lay our lives down for his glory among the nations. He's wonderful. He's glorious. Don't accept any substitutes. So what can you do if you're feeling cold, towards Jesus, if you're not feeling amazed at Jesus, what could you do? How could you fan the flame of your love for God this week? Let me tell you, friends, defend your private time in God's word and in prayer. Defend it. It will not be handed to you. 
There are very few people and forces in this world who are fighting for you to grow in holiness. Your private time in prayer and in the word will not be handed to you. You've got to defend it. You've got to make a choice. And for some of you, that means you have to go to bed earlier so that you can wake up on time. Defend your time in Bible reading. Defend your time in prayer. And when you're in those times, think about God. Think about Christ, not about yourself. The Bible is not primarily about you. And you will short-circuit your Bible reading if you approach it by saying, huh, I wonder what this means to me. I wonder what this says about me. I wonder how I could apply this to my life. Maybe those are great questions somewhere down the road, but the Bible is primarily the revelation of God. God has given the Bible to you to teach you about himself, not so that you can continue your navel-gazing life and think more about yourself. Imagine going on a date with someone and the whole time they just talk about themselves. That's awful. It's so awkward. And you're like, yeah, so I was at work this week. And then the other person says, well, I was at work this week and you wouldn't believe what happened to me. It's awkward. And some of us approach Bible reading that way. And it's weird. We like read these astounding things in the Bible. And we're like, man, I wonder what this means for my life. Maybe, friends, we ought to be asking the question, how could a God this glorious reveal himself to me? It's amazing. We read earlier in the service from Malachi chapter 1, where God says, I will be glorified among the nations. And we ought to be amazed at that. We ought to think about God when we read that passage and think about the many magnitude of things revealed about God in just that simple statement. Just think about it. God says, I will be glorified among the nations. What does that mean? That means God's worthy of a lot of glory. Specifically, he's worthy of glory from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that means that God is not just a white man's religion, but that God is worthy of praise from people that look different than I do. What else does that mean? That means that God is at work to accomplish a purpose. He says, I will be glorified among the nations. He doesn't just say, I want to be glorified by the nations. He says, I will be. And so what does that mean? That means that God's working to accomplish this purpose. What else do we know about God? Well, he always accomplishes his purposes. That means that the mission of the church to see disciples made among every tribe, tongue, and nation will surely, certainly, finally be accomplished. You can trust it. And what does that mean? Now we get to application. Anything that I do to see God's glory spread among the nations will never be invested in vain. Your gifts and your offerings will never be invested in vain if they're given to God's glory among the nations. Because God says in Malachi 1.11, I will be glorified among the nations. That's just an example, friends, about what your quiet time could look like this week. Think about God before you think about yourself. Jesus is a faithful servant. Jesus is infinitely glorious. And finally, Jesus is the Lord of God's people. Jesus is not just a better hero or a more creative person than Moses is. He is the Lord of his people. He is the ruler of his people. He is the king of his people. Moses gave his life to build an institution which Jesus reigns over. And now, God's presence no longer dwells in a tabernacle, 
but in the church, which Jesus now rules over. Verse 5, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 3, 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Friends, the word but in your Bible will always lead to some astounding things because it's a contrast. It's showing two things that are different. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. I want you to notice three crucial distinctions between Moses and Jesus from this verse. Moses was faithful. Christ is faithful. Friends, Moses is dead. Don't look to him as a faithful servant. He cannot bring you back to God. Moses was faithful. Christ is faithful. Christ conquered death and he will never die again. He will never go out of style. He will never run out of power. There is no election or cultural wind of change that could steal his power or influence from him. He will always be able to bring you back to God. Moses was faithful. Christ is faithful. Moses was faithful in all God's house. Christ is faithful over God's house. Moses is an employee. He has a job to perform. He's working in God's house. Christ is faithful over God's house. He's in charge of it all. He's the owner of it all because Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Why is Christ so much more infinitely glorious than Moses is? Because Moses was a servant, Christ is the son. He is the heir of all things. Think about Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, which I hope you've been working on memorizing. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Everything that you could see or hear or feel or touch or hear or taste has Jesus's name written on it. When my grandma was getting old and advanced, anytime that you would go to her house and you just mentioned something, she would say, put your name on it. I want you to have it when I'm gone. Everything that you could ever see has Jesus' name on it. It's his. He's the heir of all things. And so he is more glorious than Moses. Think also about Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. What does it say? Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Moses and Abraham and the prophets were speaking faithful things about Jesus, but God's plan and God's revelation of himself came to a climax, not in the prophets or the fathers, but in the son. In these last days, these climactic days, he's spoken to us by his son. And verse 5 hints at that again, Hebrews 3, 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses is not the hero of God's story. Moses is not the climax of God's revelation. 
Moses lived and worked and served to testify to things that would come to light later. Namely, the climax of God's revelation, which is his son who lived a perfect life, gave himself for your sins and rose again victoriously. All of history has been pointing to that. And so here we have this reality that anything you could read about Moses in the Old Testament in one way or another testifies to the things that were to be spoken later in Hebrews 3.5. Think also about Hebrews 3.1 where you're told to consider Jesus. So what does it look like to find Jesus in the Old Testament? That's been a very popular thing in the last two decades. And it's wonderful that it's been a popular thing to find Jesus on every page of your Bible, to see every verse of Scripture pointing to the risen Son. It's not just a passing trend, it's biblical. How do you actually do it? What does it actually look like for you tomorrow reading Leviticus to find Jesus when you read about Moses? Because Moses is wanting you to get there. Moses is testifying about the things that were to be spoken later. How do you get there? How do you do that? Let me tell you how not to do it. A lot of us are tempted when we try to find Jesus in the Old Testament to just find some sort of random parallel between Jesus and some random Old Testament character. Moses, Jesus, both have five letters in their name. Both, friends, have two S's in their name. Ooh, that sounds super impressive and spiritual, right? Don't do that. Don't do that. Think about this. Moses carried a staff and he used that staff to deliver God's people. Jesus carried a cross and he used that cross to deliver God's people. Now that one sounds a lot more plausible, doesn't it? But that's not how we get from point A to point B. That's like saying if you were trying to get somewhere and you were like, oh, that's a road and the place I'm trying to get, it's on a road, so probably we should take that one. No, that's just a random parallel detail between two people. How do you find Jesus in the Old Testament? You just follow the trajectory of Scripture. You follow the themes and curves and edges of Scripture to find how every road is leading you to Jesus anyway. You don't need to find some random parallels. You need to just walk with Scripture, understand the flow and the narrative of Scripture. Let me give you an example. God is working to dwell with his people. He dwelled with his people in the Garden of Eden, walked with them in the cool of the day. Sin separated them. And the rest of the Old Testament tells this story about God working to dwell with his people. Moses built the tabernacle where God dwelled with his sinful people in the camp. They arrive in the promised land, and the Ark of the Covenant becomes their emblem and their symbol. And they follow the Ark of the Covenant everywhere. They eventually build a temple where God will dwell with his people in Jerusalem. And we start to see these astounding promises that God will dwell with his people in Jerusalem forever, and he'll find a son of David to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. And that's why he dwells there, because that's where the son of David will sit on a throne. God's working to dwell with his people. Trace that theme through the Old Testament. God's glory is allegedly dwelling in Jerusalem in the temple. When God's people are sent to exile, that's a problem, because now they're separated from God yet again. It's like the Garden of Eden on repeat. 
God's people yet again been separated from him. The prophet Ezekiel speaks about God's glory, God's presence departing from the temple. And so God's people are left in shambles saying, how are we going to dwell with God again? How are we going to get back to Eden again? We need to get back to Jerusalem. That's going to be the first step. And so God's people get back to Jerusalem. And what do they find there? They find, they rebuild the temple. It looks a lot more impressive on the outside, but is it all working? And then God's glory comes again to dwell with his people in Jerusalem in the person of Jesus who dwells with his people. He touches the lepers. He looks the unclean men and women in their faces and says, I'm for you. I came not to bring condemnation, but salvation. And then Jesus dies on a cross outside of Jerusalem And yet again, God's people are left in shambles. No, how's God going to dwell with his people forever if he's dead? And Jesus rises from the grave three days later to guarantee that God's people could be with him forever. Keep following the flow of scripture because Jesus has purchased the heavenly calling for you. So you will dwell with him forever in the new Jerusalem where he will sit on the throne as the son of David and every nation will stream to him in faith. You see what we did there? We didn't just find some random parallel. Uh, Moses had the tabernacle and Jesus had the temple. Moses carried a staff. Jesus carried a cross. We followed the flow of scripture. We looked at the major themes. And let me tell you, friends, you can't microwave that. There's no shortcuts to doing that. You need to read your Bible. You need to know it. Know your Bible. Verse 6 continues, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Moses and Jesus were both working to prepare a place for God to dwell. Moses built the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Where does Jesus plan for God's glory to dwell? In us. We are his house, verse 6 says. We, the church, and again, the church is not a people. It's not this event. God is not specially in this room, except when you gather here, because God dwells in you. You are the dwelling place of God. You are the house of God. He's not in the temple in Jerusalem. He's in you. He's in his people. Jesus came to bring us back to God. He is the mediator who can mitigate every conflict between you and God. Every ounce of the wrongdoing in those conflicts is on us, but Jesus mediates those conflicts. He solves them perfectly, finally, fully. He brings us back to God. In Moses' day, God dwelled in a tent. In our day, God dwells in the church, in us, in you. This is why we have this heavenly calling. This is why Jesus can give you real hope forever. This is why Jesus can give you future. It's not just going to a better place where there's a little less pain. It's knowing God. He's the reward and you get a foretaste of it now as he dwells in you if you're in the church. Jesus is the Lord of the church. 
He founded it with his blood and resurrection. He's in charge of it today. And if you want to enter into it, if you want to become one of God's people, the path is not to just live a better life. The path is not just to come to church and be around the people where God apparently dwells. The path is with Jesus through faith and repentance in Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the Lord of his people. He's in charge. He's working to bring you back to God. And any kind of substitution is dangerous. What does it look like to defer to Christ's lordship in your life? Well, let me ask you, how do you make decisions for your life? How do you make plans for the future? Do you think about... Where would I like to live? Where could I make the most money? Where could I be the most influential or the most powerful? Where could I live closest to family? Where would be the most exciting place to live? Or do you think about where could I expand the reign of King Jesus among all nations? Jesus is the Lord of his people. Don't accept the pity, pitiable substitutions of our comfort and our excitement and our ambition. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I'm going to invite the music team up. As we close, I want to tell you one more time, only Jesus can give you real hope forever. So don't let go of him. Only Jesus can give you real hope forever. So don't let go of him. Friends, you have a perfect future with God guaranteed for you forever. You have nothing to lose. So lay your life down to know Jesus and make him known. Let's pray.